0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins.
1: Welcome. Thanks for tuning in and making Washington Watch part of your day. Well, coming up on this Thursday edition, Israeli military forces are making headway in neutralizing Hamas in Gaza City. The IDF reported they had secured and destroyed a wide underground network of tunnels under the city and eliminated a number of Hamas fighters. We'll get a live report from Israel from war correspondent Chuck Holden in just a moment. And then there was five. The GOP primary field continues to dwindle as the candidates met in Miami, Florida last night for the third GOP primary presidential debate. Former President Donald Trump was not among them. In the shadow of Tuesday's election and Ohio voters placing unrestricted abortion into the state's constitution, The issue of life was not only a prominent topic, but it is also a topic that is drawing lines of separation between the candidates.
2: So no Republican president can ban... Abortions any more than a Democrat president can ban these state laws. So let's find consensus. Let's agree on what how we can ban late term abortions. Let's make sure we encourage adoptions and good quality adoptions. Let's make sure we make contraception accessible. Let's make sure that none of these state laws put a woman in jail or give her the death penalty for getting an abortion. Let's focus on how to save as many babies as we can and support as many moms as we can and stop the judgment.
1: Hmm. That was former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Meg Kilgannon joins me later to break down where the five remaining candidates stand on life. Also on Tuesday, voters in Ohio joined 23 other states in legalizing recreational marijuana.
3: It may be a lesson on messaging, because what the advocates for that said was that this is just like alcohol and we should regulate it and we should tax it just like alcohol. And as I was at the polls yesterday talking to folks, a lot of people seem to agree with that.
1: That was NBC News correspondent Priscilla Thompson. The question is, is it? just like alcohol, the push to legalize marijuana, c- marijuana continues despite mounting research of detrimental effects of marijuana usage. A study that will be presented at the American Heart Association Scientific Sessions in Philadelphia, which begins on Saturday, will highlight research connecting marijuana usage to heart failure. We're going to talk with Dr. John Fleming, physician, former member of the of Congress and a former deputy assistant secretary for health information technology in the Trump administration. And finally, as I mentioned yesterday, I sat down with House Speaker Mike Johnson and covered his two first two weeks as Speaker of the House, including the left's unhinged attacks on his Christian faith.
4: When you rise up in leadership, there are whole industries, as you know, that are dedicated to taking down public officials like me, um, they can't stand the idea that someone would openly acknowledge their faith, right? That, that's not in vogue in Washington anymore, has it been for a long time. The rest of
1: that interview coming up later here on this edition of Washington Watch. The website's TonyPerkins.com. Resources there for you and contact for contact information for all of our guests. Our word for today comes from 2 Peter, where Peter is warning against false teachers, which was a recurring theme in the letters of both Peter and Paul. It was a problem then, and it's a problem now. In chapter 2, Peter writes, They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Peor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. Paul continues in chapter 3 where he writes, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away by the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So how do we keep from being led astray? Well, we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord by being anchored in his word. To find out more about our journey through the Bible, go to frc.org slash Bible. Israeli forces have continued their push deep into the Gaza Strip, engaging Hamas terrorists in running gun battles while bulldozing and destroying the network of tunnels from which Hamas operates. They've uncovered military installations and munition plants near or even under hospitals, schools and mosques. Joining me now from the ground in Israel for an update is freelance war correspondent Chuck Holton. Chuck, welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to see you, Tony. So, Chuck, give us the latest. Uh, it sounds like it was a pretty busy day for Israeli defense forces.
5: Well, it certainly has been. They've been uh, making big gains on the ground, and they are actually approaching the hospital, the only uh, operating hospital now in north, northern Gaza, uh, the one that they have proof that the headquarters of uh, Hamas is underneath. And so that's going to get very, very difficult as they try to root out uh, from those tunnels uh, all of those Hamas fighters. They have found, as you said, hundreds of sites that were launch sites for missiles, and many of those sites uh, were next to schools, next to mosques, playgrounds, uh, buried in the ground of the playground. Uh, and we're starting to learn a little bit about how they are able to continue firing these rockets uh, because many of them were actually the rocket launchers built into buildings or built into the ground so that they didn't have to set up a rocket launcher or anything like that. They just had to uncover it with a tarp, and they could set a timer and, and have those things fired. Uh, there has not been a day go by since October 7th when we have not had uh, rockets firing out of Gaza. Today was no exception. We had over 10 rocket launches out of Gaza today, And uh, so far, the uh, Hamas terrorists have fired 9,500 rockets between them and Hezbollah uh, since October 7. Now, they say that about 12% of those rockets have fallen short. And so that all but guarantees that Hamas has killed uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of its own people uh, with those rocket launches. Now, because many of those are homemade rockets and they malfunction. But some of those rockets are long-range rockets, and they're rockets that are given to them or sold to them by countries like North Korea, Iran, and uh, those are the ones that are most concerning because they can strike much deeper into Israel and can uh, pack a bigger punch. Those are the ones that the IDF has been most focused on shooting down, and over the last couple days we've seen the number of long-range rockets drop precipitously, so that's a very good sign. Uh, I don't think, though, that we'll be able to uh, claim victory in, uh, in any sense in Gaza until they go at least a day with no rocket launches whatsoever. And uh, let's hope that that happens soon.
1: So video from both the IDF and Hamas show the urban fighting in Gaza City, and it, it, it resembles in many ways the battles to retake uh, Fallujah in, in Iraq almost mm-hmm. 20 years ago. Uh, how intense ha- has the, ba- the fighting that you've seen been?
5: I think that you could more likely equate it with the Battle for Ramadi, uh, because in the Battle for Ramadi, the Marine Corps put the word out beforehand and told people they were going to take the city and that anybody that was left in the city after a certain date would be considered a combatant. Uh, That's the only other uh, time that I know of when an army has given the word beforehand what they were going to do in order to give people a chance to leave, because that also gives – the benefit to the enemy so that they can further prepare and they can also get their people out. Or let's, in this case, here in Gaza, get some of the hostages out. Perhaps it's a good chance that many of those hostages are now no longer in the northern part of Gaza. They're, they're either in southern Gaza or have even been taken out of Gaza altogether to someplace like Iran. Um, so we don't know that for sure. We have only seen very little in the way of proof of life of any of those hostages. And uh, as you know, only one of them so far has been rescued by the IDF. And that, that's a major concern for uh, the IDF right now. And so they're having to go very slowly and methodically through the outskirts of Gaza and into Gaza City, not only because there are just so many angles from which you can be shot in an urban environment, but specifically because they're trying very hard to um, kill the enemy without killing people who don't need to be killed, and that includes civilians. They actually have special units that are going in on the ground with the IDF to specifically grab and rescue uh, Palestinian civilians, women and children, that they come upon as they're fighting their way through and spirit them out of the combat zone to the south, as you know opened up uh, at least one humanitarian corridor. Now they're saying a second one will be opened up uh, as of today that will allow people to flee south. Again, that is a two-edged sword. It it helps with the information war, but it also gives Hamas on the ground a chance to get its fighters, wounded or not, out of the combat zone and maybe even smuggle some of the hostages out as well.
1: But this really does show the contrast between Israel and Hamas when they're notifying them in advance that they're coming into the city and anyone there is going to be considered a combatant after a certain time period. And then you contrast that with what they're uncovering there in Gaza City, where schools, hospitals, mosques are being used as cover for military operations. I mean, they don't care anything about the civilians.
5: Well, that's exactly what the leadership of Hamas has been saying all along. And they have said that we are a nation of martyrs. And so we don't have any problem martyring our people for this cause. Now, normally when, when a, a group or a country wants to make heroes out of its people, they're talking about their fighters. They're talking about their heroes are the warriors that go and stand between the enemy and their Women and children. In this case, though, Hamas is making the women and children the martyrs, and that that is unprecedented in uh, modern war for sure. Uh, and so, for them to say that they love uh, death as much as we love life, it's kind of hypocritical in a way because the leadership of Hamas actually isn't in Gaza; they're right. in Qatar, which brings up a whole nother uh, question because. The United States calls Qatar a trusted ally in the region, but Qatar gives hundreds of millions of dollars to Hamas and hosts the Hamas leadership in their country. And, oh, by the way, we have a military base there with 8,000 troops in it. It's just kind of hard to wrap your, your head around when you start to think about it.
1: And it's interesting. We don't hear much from the international community uh, condemning Hamas for pushing civilians to the forefront of the battle, whether they want to or not, and I mean, it, it's just—it it is quite amazing, the duplicity, the hypocrisy that we see. Uh, Chuck, we're almost out of time. The the, the White House today announcing that uh, Israel was going to have these uh, four-hour pauses each day to allow for humanitarian relief, but then. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's office dismissed that, so what do we know? Is that going to be taking place each day or not
5: Well, it's being reported that it's uh, supposed to happen, and uh, I think the real problem with that is that it is a it's a big publicity coup for Hamas because Hamas's objective here is legitimacy, and so the, by by negotiating with these terrorists. They are being given legitimacy, and this is all coming under heavy, heavy pressure from the United States. Now, also, I would say every time there has been any kind of lull in the fighting since it began uh, after October 7th, Hamas has used that time to fire more rockets into Israel. And so I will be watching very closely to see if that happens, with if they actually do these humanitarian pauses, if they have rockets come flying out of Israel, I mean, out of uh, Gaza into Israel during those supposedly ceasefires. Uh, But again, all this does is it it takes the pressure off Hamas. And taking the pressure off Hamas is doing exactly what uh, President Reagan, back when I was a young man, uh, said that we should never do, and that's negotiate with terrorists. Right. Right.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Chuck Holton, thanks so much for uh, joining us. We continue to pray for your safety, so please uh, stay safe. We look forward to talking to you again real soon. All right. Folks, stick around. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk presidential politics and the issue of life. The debate last night, how did life factor in? Meg Kilgannon joins us to talk about it.
0: Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective.
3: Family Research Councils Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org heroicfaith faith. Again, that's frc.org heroicfaith heroic faith. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion.
1: welcome back to washington watch good to have you with us on this thursday the website is tonyperkins.com all right as we were talking about top of the program the third gop presidential primary debate took place last night in miami florida and just as in the previous two debates the candidate squared off without the front runner as former president donald trump again declined to participate uh, he uh, had his own event down in florida not too far from the debate now this uh, third debate comes just uh, a day after ohio voters passed issue one which legalizes abortion uh, all the way to the moment of birth in the state's constitution now this is a big contrast to the laws in ohio at present now the debate the debate last night i think offered republican candidates the opportunity to react to the narrative of the legacy media the media is pushing to scare Republicans out of promoting the sanctity of human life. So how did they respond? Did they take the opportunity to, uh, communicate a pro-life message? Well, join me now to discuss this, Meg Kilgannon, senior fellow for education studies at the family research council. She served in the department of education during the Trump administration. Meg, welcome back to Washington watch. Thanks, Tony. So the legacy media wants to, uh, to create, uh, Instant analysis of who won and who lost last night. But let's talk about how the candidates handled the issue of protecting life, especially coming just a day after issue one passed Ohio, making it the seventh state that has uh, put uh, abortion into the state's constitution or restricted pro-life laws. So did we see a difference between the candidates last night?
2: Um, we we did. I, I watched that segment of the debate about three times today to, to get ready for our talk right now. And, um, I, I gotta tell you, I, I felt like I was more confused the more I listened about what was a cohesive pro-life message from the Republican party or from any one candidate. I mean, they were just all over the map. Um, and I, I really feel like it, 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 shouldn 't be that hard as long as Republicans have had the pro life issue as you know the the definitive platform of the party, and pretty much if you 're not pro life you 're not going to get the nomination right uh, to to have that display on stage was it was really quite something
1: so what 's changed in terms of the the issue of the sanctity of life, the desire to protect the unborn and women post row I mean wh- wh- why has why do we see now politicians that are stumbling over themselves when before there was great clarity
2: well before you know when when, when we were still operating uh, under the the false idea that there's a constitutional right to an abortion, which of course there is not and there cannot be. Um, then it's easy to say that you're pro-life and not really have to be very specific about it, right? Because it's not really, not really an available option to you. So now that it matters, um, candidates are struggling and you're finding out who, who has consistent uh, pro life values that are based on maybe a larger worldview view uh, of faith tradition some some real meaning to them rather than just oh, that 's what I have to say if I want to be republican and so okay i 'll say i 'm pro life you could see there, you could see a range on the stage and then you have people who have said they 're consistently pro life and maybe they have voted pro life or or supported pro life policies and and yet they they are in the face of Recent electoral challenges uh, for the issue they're sort of walking it back or rethinking it or wondering if if this is still what we should be doing as a party and so there, we don't we shouldn't be leaving that much wiggle room. This is yeah. what we should still be doing as a party right? well,
1: let's kind of go down the, the list there's five candidates uh, you know' that, that's, uh, it's like musical chairs. it seems like uh, every time uh, we go do a new debate the music is stopped and we lose one. So, so yeah. <laughs> I, from what I heard from uh, Governor DeSantis, it, it doesn't seem like he's equivocating. It sounds like he's I mean, he's talking about creating a culture of life. He's got a record. Um, he did. So he, he did. Give me your take um, on him. He
2: he, he did. But he, having signed a six week bill, he certainly didn't mention that he did that. And he seemed open to some sort of um, uh, t- to some sort of compromise on that point. Um I, I didn't hear any of them really use the term "baby" <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. when they were talking about it, which was interesting to me. But um, I thought his life was probably of all the answers one of the better ones. But I don't really want to hear about adults necessarily when I'm talking about when I when they're yeah. talking about this issue. I'd like to hear about the unborn child I, that we're protecting. You know,
1: it, it, what's what's amazing about that to me, Meg, is that that's the conversation that we've been having for four decades. It's about the right. unborn child, and for some reason. I don't know if it's the media that's driving this narrative, you know, and people are they're scared. They're responding to it. I don't really expect that from from DeSantis because he's got such a great record on the life issue as governor. And, and I think past performance is the best indicator of future performance based on my mm-hmm. quarter of a century in politics. Let's talk about South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, you know, she declared I'm unapologetically pro-life. But then she gets into this thing, don't judge me for being pro-life and I won't <laughs> judge you. I mean, who's judging? We're talking about laws.
2: Yeah, her her answer, I think, was the most confusing and uh, frankly offensive of any of the candidates. I just really did not. Really did not enjoy her answer. I mean, saying that we need to make sure abortion is, uh, or, or contraception is accessible. I mean, are we going to pay for that, too? Like, and, and what about and, the, her and, and, and comment, since when is it not?
1: Her comment about putting mothers given the death penalty. I mean, I missed that
2: somewhere. I, I, I mean, yeah. this is I, the
1: talking points of the left.
2: Exactly, and and to call your the the pro life base of the Republican Party some, to make them seem like we're some sort of ogres or somehow we're the the you know that we have to be managed or <laughs> I, I yeah. don't know what the point of that is. It was really disingenuous. So and, Tim Scott. And-
1: Give me, before we run out of time, Tim Scott, he, he embraced it. the, the pain bill that uh, Lindsey Graham is introducing at the point of child feels pain, sucking its thumb. We should have a that should be the bare minimum of protection across the nation.
2: He did. He did. I, I, I have heard him speak more eloquently about life, but he did say that at the debate last night.
1: All right. Well, we'll have to leave uh, Governor Christie, who is pretty weak on this. Uh, yes. well, yeah, I guess he's OK, but he's, he's still weak. And, and Vivek, uh, he's just, depends on the day of the week. Uh, right. He did have a good statement last night uh, on, on the life he did. issue. So he, he did last night. But never know where he may be. Meg Kilgannon, great to see you. Thanks for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me, Tony. All
1: right, we'll continue that conversation another time. Coming up next, marijuana. Also in the state of uh, Ohio on Tuesday, voters approved recreational marijuana. But there are some significant health consequences. We're gonna talk about that next with Dr. John Fleming. Don't go away. Two new studies link daily marijuana use with a higher risk of heart failure or heart attack, especially in older users. Now, the numbers appear convincing. One study followed more than 150,000 people for nearly four years and saw those with daily marijuana use had a 34% increased risk of heart failure. As more states legalize recreational marijuana, as we saw with Issue 2 in Ohio this past week, What are the national health implications to this increased government-sanctioned use of marijuana? Here to discuss this, Dr. John Fleming, former congressman from the 4th District of Louisiana, who served as a deputy secretary at HHS. He also served in the nation's military as a naval medical doctor. Dr. Fleming, welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to see you.
6: Yes. Hey, Tony. Great to be with you again.
1: Thanks for taking uh, time off the campaign trail as you run for treasurer, in uh, Louisiana to join us to talk about a a really important issue. We've talked about this before. You've studied the harmful effects of marijuana for years. What jumped out at you from this latest study?
6: Well, this study really grabbed me because uh, I'd seen nothing written about this, but I really felt at my core as a physician, as somebody who has treated a lot of people with lung and heart disease related to tobacco. That, uh, that marijuana smoking it has got to be as dangerous, if not more so, than uh, tobacco, cigarettes. And in fact, this study actually comes out, as, as you said, it's a very large study over a number of years. So there's no question now that the tar and all the, the toxic chemicals and everything that we find in cigarettes are also in marijuana as well.
1: Now, this comes, as as I said, in Ohio, now we have almost two dozen states that have recreational marijuana use. And this comes at a time when we have record deaths related to drugs, not marijuana, but fentanyl. And it just it it doesn't seem consistent if we're concerned about drug usage, drug related deaths, that we would be moving to make drugs more accessible.
6: Absolutely, Tony. It's a seamless process. And uh, you may be aware that I wrote a book back in 2006 uh, based on the premise that the earlier a child is exposed to addicting chemicals, whether it's tobacco, uh, alcohol, marijuana, whatever, uh, the studies show clearly that the brain becomes imprinted on these addictive substances, whatever they may be, and they have a much higher risk of ultimately developing alcoholism, drug addiction, whatever. And the rates of addiction have been going up progressively. As we become more relaxed about access by children, young adults, to these addicting substances, we're having more and more problems, and the drugs are more and more powerful, which is why you see the zombie effect that we see today on the streets of San Francisco. Uh, so it's, it's bad on the addiction side. It's bad on the health side. And you've heard me talk before about um, the other problems that we see, uh, hyperemesis syndrome where people can't stop throwing up, uh, acute and chronic psychoses, including schizophrenia, much higher percent. And even among young young people, they've measured that from teen years to their early 30s, they lose eight points in their IQ. So, so Dr. Fleming,
1: uh, one of the... Uh, talking points, if you will, of those that are promoting the legalization or decriminalization of marijuana is that, hey, it's just like alcohol. Let's just go ahead and legalize it and let's tax it. So what would you say to that? Uh, do, do we know that al- you know alcohol, I mean, there, there are hazardous effects to it as well, but is that really an apple to apple comparison?
6: No, not at all. There's a huge social cost to um, recreational and even medicinal uh, use of marijuana. And what we see evolving today is big marijuana. Now, what does that mean? Let's go back to the 60s and 70s when we found out that people were dying right and left of heart disease. My dad died at age 43 as a chain smoker. My mother at age uh, 56 Of colon cancer. Both of them were chain smokers. And so what we found was people were dying prematurely. And as a result of that, uh, there were investigations and big tobacco, as you recall, they all claimed that they couldn't find any addictive effects at all of tobacco. And later that was proven to be wrong. And then we had these big tobacco settlements. Well, big marijuana now is replacing big tobacco. It's a big business and people are making a lot of money on it and they're doing it at the expense of our young people. And the taxes that are coming in from that is far below projected levels, but it doesn't come close to to taking care of the health and psychiatric problems that develop as a result of these drugs.
1: Yeah, I was going to say this is going to lead to big government because – As we now say that health care is a right and government is going to provide it, this is only going to make it more difficult to ration what care or it's going to lead to the rationing of the care we have because we're increasing the problems. Uh, Dr. Fleming, we're out of time, but always great to see you again. Thanks so much for uh, taking time to join us today.
6: Great, Tony. Thank you once again. All
1: right. We'll see you real soon. Dr. John Fleming, former congressman, a former member of the Trump administration in the Department of Health and Human Services. All right, coming up next, my sit-down interview on Capitol Hill with House Speaker Mike Johnson. We're going to take a look at that coming up straight ahead here on this edition of Washington Watch. Don't go away.
3: Get this free guide at frc.org/slash prolifemen to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. Well, it's been a whirlwind in Washington since Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson was elected Speaker of the House two weeks ago today. Congress currently faces many Many crucial issues, including the urgent need to provide military aid to Israel and to pass key appropriations bills. All of this as the November 17th deadline of government funding draws closer. The left, with the the help of the legacy media, sometimes one and the same, has been working hard to, to demonize Speaker Johnson, even attacking him for his covenant marriage, as we've talked about here on the program, and sound parenting practices. But we've seen both his unwavering faith and his dedication to the position that God has placed him in at this critical time, and it's refreshing. Yesterday, I sat down with Speaker Johnson in the Capitol for an in-person interview. Here's what we discussed. I'm here with Speaker Mike Johnson in the ceremonial room for the House Speaker just off the House floor. Speaker Mike Johnson, you know, that has a nice ring to
4: it. I'm not used to it yet. Welcome to the Capitol. Welcome to the uh... Ceremonial office, one of the speaker's offices. There are many I've learned <laughs> in the last um, 10 days or so.
1: It's great to have you here. So two weeks as uh, House Speaker, what was it like after that vote? I mean, we watched the
4: speech, but when, uh, let me ask this, has it settled in yet? It, it hasn't really, to be honest. It's It's been a whirlwind. Um as soon as I was handed the gavel, they told me when you step down from the rostrum, your life will not be the same so long as you hold the gavel. And it's largely been true. Um, this is an, an, all points bulletin kind of job. I mean, you know, you have to be on 24 hours a day. Um, there's not a lot of downtime. And I, I think that's particularly true right now because of the way this transition happened. It was, it was regretful, a regretful, uh, but
1: that's not new for you.
4: <laughs> well, I mean, you've been 24 seven since I've known you. True. Perhaps I was prepared for that, but. To, to assume a speakership, to begin one midstream, right, in the right, midst right. of a Congress, is very different than it's normally done. Plus,
1: not going through the various, usually it's like majority leader, then speaker. Right. I and mean, you, you came from the, being the, the vice chair of the conference. Now, you did serve as chairman of the RSC. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, this is like going from, uh, you know, zero to mock speed in 30 seconds.
4: Somebody said it's the JV team to the NFL okay whatever the metaphor is it was a lot uh, and there was a is a lot to be done because we were kind of in a tumultuous period for those weeks and we had to pull the team together we had to cast the vision we had to staff up immediately the speaker's office has i think over 80 employees with the various divisions and jobs that are that must be handled we had to you know set the policies and procedures in place and and immediately of course upon us is the government funding right, issues right, right. And the appropriations deadline and all the rest so it's been a lot. It's been a lot. Well, let's talk about some of those issues as you, you
1: know, two weeks into the position, the top three issues facing you, what, what
4: would you say they are? Well, the immediate uh, that's before us and we face next week is no- November 17, and that's the uh, when the government funding runs out and we would go into a shutdown if we don't, either complete the appropriations process or do some sort of stopgap funding measure. And And you've been working, I mean, the the House is working late into the night to get these appropriations
1: bills done, Right. right. but you're not going to get them all done by the 17th.
4: No, and and part of the reason for that is there was no muscle memory. This has actually not been done for quite some time in Washington. In fact, they told us it could not be done. But this House Republican majority committed to doing it a different way, to changing how Washington works. And um, I'm pleased to say that we've, we've done a great job in that regard. We're moving the separate appropriations bills through the process, but we've run out of time because we lost a little bit of the clock and a little bit of the calendar. Um, and so it will require a stopgap measure to allow us additional time to complete that process. But I'm, I'm very optimistic about this. We, As late as last night, we were meeting, I'm meeting personally with small groups, subsets of members, and talking through their ideas on that, concerns and we're, we're reaching consensus. I'll tell you, this is an encouragement that there is a great esprit de corps amongst the members in the House more than I've ever seen right. since I've been here. I, I, I can years. echo that. That's what I'm saying. And then they went home, Tony, uh, last weekend and the weekend before, and they they were they they received that same level of energy, esprit de right. corps from the grassroots, from the base at home, from constituents, even in different parties. And I'm hearing in the narrative when we're talking about the time, the clock is ticking. We're just uh, we're
1: less than two weeks away from uh, the deadline here. Um, But I'm not hearing anything about a government shutdown. I'm hearing about how we're going to fix this among all the members on the Republican side.
4: And we're not going to fix it the way they have always done to us in the past, as long as I've been here, and that is wait to the very last minute right before Christmas and jam an omnibus spending package upon members of Congress and thus the people that spends, you know, trillions of dollars and is 3,000 pages that no one read. That's the playbook every time. We're not doing that playbook anymore. Good.
1: Let's talk Israel. Mm -hmm. That is, I mean, the Middle East is. I mean, it, it looks like it could spin out of control at any moment.
4: Yeah, we it, it can, and you saw. Not only did I did I address that as a top priority in my speech before I took the oath of office. Um, I, I also came out as our literally the first act uh, under my speakership was the resolution to declare our commitment to Israel, our great friend and ally. And every day since then, we have been emphasizing that. The first major bill that we passed was the Israel uh, supplemental funding package, uh, the, the, the aid that they desperately need, and is exactly the amount that was requested even by the but, White but House. But the Senate's not moving. They're not moving it. You know why? Because we added to pay for What a concept. That's another thing that we're doing differently. You know, you, you, we can't just borrow the money from some other country to spend spend and help our thirty three trillion dollars oh. in debt at what point do we say enough is enough? Thirty-three point six trillion and it adds every moment. While we're recording this, we'll go another twenty or thirty million dollars in debt you know, just over a few minutes. It's not sustainable. And so we have obligations as the great superpower, the great leader in the world. But our first obligation is is stewardship of the tr- precious resources of the American people. And I'm a maybe I'm old school Tony, but I think we can do these things simultaneously, but it takes fiscal discipline. Every hardworking family in America has to make a budget. They have to live within their means. They don't get to spend beyond that. And their government should operate on the same principles. It's not rocket science, but we've gotten away from it, and that's why we're in this terrible situation, and we're trying to bring common sense back to the equation. And so taking uh, $14.5 billion out of a $67 billion fund that was set there to build up the IRS and hire new IRS agents to go and audit small businesses and families, okay, if you're weighing those priorities... I sent the message to Senator Schumer and the the Democrats who run the Senate. I think helping Israel right now is a little bit higher priority than hiring IRS agents. I wasn't trying to make a political statement. That just makes sense to
1: us, and it makes sense to the people. House Speaker Mike Johnson. I like that ring. Mm. I'll I'll never get tired of saying Mm. that. So you, we've worked on this issue in years past, religious freedom, freedom of speech. Uh, Are you concerned by what we see happening across America when it comes to the anti, anti-Semitic activity, and, and not only on college campuses, but now right here in, in our nation's capital.
4: We're seeing it everywhere. I really thought that a large wave of anti-Semitism was not a, something that we would see in America. I thought we were kind of beyond that. There's always pockets of that. But, wow, I mean, it's been shocking uh, to see how this is this kind of uprising of anti-Semitism is, is just... Uh, infected the whole country, and it a lot of it is is sort of centered in the college campuses and they 've been indoctrinated by these radical leftist professors and all of that. We know that that 's a cultural issue, but to have it here in Congress has been so disconcerting. I mean we had a member of Congress in the last twenty four hours who doubled right. down on this right. you know from uh, what do they say from the sea to the uh, to the ocean it, it, basically the message is they want to they want to eradicate the state of israel right and that's an elected member of the people in the United States Congress. Yeah, speaking out in support of a terrorist group. Yes, they're 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 not just pro-Palestinian. It, it's as if they're supporting the the atrocious actions of Hamas. I mean, it's 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 devastating. We heard the har- harrowing stories of families of these kidnapping victims in Israel. Uh, we had a, a candlelight vigil, a bipartisan vigil, by the way, on the steps of the House last night, and I led the group in prayer, and I, I just. I, I prayed to God that we would have peace in Jerusalem. We'd have peace in Israel. We're admonished in Scripture to, right. to pray that and to insist upon it. And um, it was a great uh, feeling there to have Republicans and Democrats standing united in this cause. And I think we need to send that message around the world. Well, along those lines... When, when I was uh, chairing the U.S. Commission on International
1: Religious Freedom, we were actually looking at uh, the anti-Semitism that was taking place in Western Europe. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing from the um, official from the United Nations who oversees the anti-Semitism uh, effort there. And he said, that, you know, this is, we need to be paying attention because it's the canary in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. And when you look at what's happening here in the United States, it's not going to stop right. with this anti-Israel, anti-Jewish. Mm-hmm. I mean, it moves to Christianity next. History tells us that.
4: Well, sure it does. And, and our faiths are tied together. I mean, especially in this country, of course, we speak often about our Judeo-Christian foundations. And and we have that in, in common. And so it's a matter of faith to us, but it's also a matter of common sense and principle. I mean, it makes sense for us to support our strongest ally in the Middle East. They're the only democracy in that region. And, and they're surrounded by neighbors who now, clearly, we know, want to eradicate them. And, and, and it makes good sense from a public policy standpoint, from an investment standpoint. Uh, we have to have Israel be uh, sustained and, and survive and be strong. And I've committed that to Prime Minister Netanyahu, to my, to my counterpart, who's the speaker of the Knesset in the last few days. They invited me to come and address the Knesset, and I'm going to plan to do that as soon as possible, um, because I think we need to continue to just reinforce and double down on this idea that America will always stand with Israel. It's This is the right side of the conflict.
1: Is this same spirit what is driving the attacks on when you, when you see the hostility toward Christian faith? I mean, you've been attacked for your faith. Yeah. Uh, the fact that you know, you have a covenant marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, right. <laughs> which I had something to do with. It's your fault. <laughs> yeah. <but laughs> so, and, and you're protecting your kids from uh, evil influences. Somehow, doing what used to be
4: normal makes you a, a, a target, a villain. It's, it's been remarkable, hasn't it? Um, you know, look, we, we, we know what comes with the territory when you rise up in leadership. There are whole industries, as you know, that are. Dedicated to taking down public officials like me, um, they can 't stand the idea that someone would openly acknowledge their faith right that 's not in vogue in Washington anymore. Has it been for a long time? so what you 're seeing right now is Washington and the surrounding press corps interacting with a leader who openly acknowledges what he believes. What a concept I mean you know within the previous generations, everyone did right, right as of right now the the polling affirms that over a majority of the of the American people also identify as Christians you know with their faith. This should not be a remarkable thing. It, what would be remarkable to the framers of our Constitution it, that this, is that this would be controversial. Right. That's how far we we'll go. But come. I
1: think that's a part of the cancel culture to try to suppress, repress, to ice, make people of faith feel like they're isolated and sure. alone so they'll go silent. <clears throat> and that's all the more reason we need to speak up.
4: Well, and that's what's happened over decades. You know, we've lamented this many times. We saw the trend happen, the cultural shifts in America, because... They convinced Americans over time that there was this rigid, you know, the separation of church and state. Of course, they take the phrase completely out of context right. from the letter that Jefferson wrote. We all know that. And, and what they what they've convinced a generation or two of Americans uh, of is that that means that faith can have no influence in the public square. Of course, the, the original meaning of the First Amendment was that the government cannot encroach upon the church, right? They wanted, the founders were so clear, they wanted a vibrant expression of faith in the public square because they knew that what we were doing here was an experiment in self-governance. And they knew that to maintain a constitutional republic of, by, and for the people, you had to have a basic consensus, a a sense of of morality and virtue that undergirded the republic or else it it wouldn't continue. I mean, Washington said of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion, and morality are indispensable supports. And then John Adams comes next and he says, look, our Constitution is made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. We have completely forgotten those notions. and we that'd, make a great, to that'd make a great course
1: to teach. Oh, yeah.
4: I've done that. <laughs> I've done that. Yep. How
1: can our viewers and our listeners be praying for you and Kelly and the family?
4: Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's no fun to be lied about and maligned and misquoted. You've faced that in your time and service and career as well. Um, i got a I got a resilient little little team, little family, and I'm blessed. Kelly is a, a woman of strong faith. She knows. She believes God called us to this. And so um, she's being sustained by the prayers and support and encouragement of lots of friends and people that we don't even know around the country who are praying for us. All of our kids feel that. Um, they're not uh, unaccustomed to this either. Uh, and we're going to get through it. Look, I'm undaunted by it. I had my feelings surgically removed back in the 1980s, so they can't hurt my feelings. Um, it's no fun to have your family, um, you know, attacked in the way they are. But they, they have a, a strong sense about why we're here and we're sticking together. But we appreciate all those prayers and that encouragement and support. The part of the strength comes from the fact that you
1: could see God's hand at work. And you made reference to this uh, in your opening speech when you were accepted the nomination and, the, and you were voted in as a speaker god has been directing your steps members here god nothing happens by chance
4: yeah i mean scripture is very clear about that and if you are a bible believing christian you know that god is the one that raises up people in authority and he sets down others and um he is sovereign and so understanding that is is actually a very liberating it is. truth right it is i mean it takes the burden. he says my burden is light because you know if you're, if you're doing your best, as flawed as you are, to operate in accordance with God's principles and to do what is right and good for the people, um, then, then God blesses that and, it, and it, takes the, um, it takes the responsibility in some measure off your shoulders. As John Quincy Adams famously said, duty is ours, results are God's, right? You One know my that quote
1: I do. He said it right there on in the, in the house floor. That's right. Exactly. When they uh, passed the gag rule to keep him from talking about slavery. No. That's right. Speaker Mike Johnson, thanks so much for taking time to, uh, to join us today.
4: Thank you. And for all the influence and the uh, mentorship over the years, I really appreciate it.
1: And we're going to be praying for you even harder now.
4: Thank you. We need it.
1: Well, I want to encourage you to join with us in praying for Mike Johnson and for Congress and all of those in authority. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he said, Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may, here's the key, lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God and Savior. So if you'd like to join us, yeah, this is a great opportunity to see the power of prayer at work. So if you'd like to join us, text the word speaker to 67742. That's the word speaker to 67742. And join us in praying for speaker Mike Johnson.
0: Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action.